0: So, you know, the, uh, the bad thing about really good times is because you reach a pinnacle, and then there's only one way to go, and that's down. So, uh, two weeks ago, we had a really high time, you know, and, and every week thereafter, we're comparing, you know, compared to that, how, how was this for you? And so, that's the danger You know, it's a very simple and easy way for us to look and understand what the Buddha is talking about, uh, the inherent uh, suffering and impermanence. Because when something is good, we want it to stay. You know, or we want every experience to be that same way. I mean, we're addicted to this. You know, addiction is not this separate, set-apart kind of, you know, dysfunction that some people have. (laughs) We all have it. We are all addicted. It's just what's, what's, you know, like... Oh, what's your favorite drug? What, which thing are you, uh, are, are you addicted to? And so the Buddha says that everyone desires happiness. You know, everyone wants to be happy. And so we go about our lives doing the thing that we think will make us happy. He says, but the danger in searching or grasping after happiness is that ultimately you're going to encounter things that uh, don't bring you the level of happiness that you are. Are desiring, and then comes the issue. So, so there's a practice, a training that we undertake that helps us to uh, uh, that helps to support us in those times when we're not happy. Uh, there's a practice that we can undertake that supports us uh, in those times that when we are, are experiencing some kind of of uh, joy or some type kind of validation that we don't take that to be the norm so that we don't get into a posture where we feel like, I deserve this, and if you don't give it to me, then I'm going to have a problem with you. And so you see, sometimes when we're stepping forward to do something, uh, that kind or those kinds of minds uh, arise, that mind stream arises where we feel entitled to something, or we uh, or where we can recognize something that would be useful and beneficial, and if it's not there, then we're then we're going to demand it. And so this is a practice of non-demand. You know, uh, sometimes we talk about non-violence, and and that's okay to talk about that. But I want to talk today about non-demand uh, because it deals, it helps us to deal with our attitude of of deciding how things are supposed to be. Things are as they are, and that comes about through cause and condition. If we don't recognize that it comes through cause and condition, when something happens, we're perplexed. We don't know how it got that way. We, Because we can't see how it arose, we don't know how to subdue it or how to interject something else that can, can modify the situation. And so we're, we're just left like wretches undone running hither and... Uh, just running to and fro, trying to do something, but without the stillness and the wisdom, without the compassion for oneself and others that's required to make an effective change. You know, and so there is change and there is effective change. There is doing and there is effective doing. And he says the most effective doing is doing when there is no doer. In other words, when I don't have a dog in the fight, when I don't have anything that I am trying to make happen because I want it to happen, but just recognizing what would bring harmony, what would bring uh, a sense of security, a sense of safety, what would... uh, Um, allow for the joyfulness of ease to arise in a situation. Uh, uh, When we're looking for that as opposed to what's best for me, then we are in a position where we are able to contribute towards uh, a meaningful Uh, solution. And then he says, and even when you do that, (laughs) can't be too happy about that because all things change. Change according to the minds that bring things into being. Uh, Of the niyamas, he speaks of karma as one of the niyamas. And it has to do with uh, our uh, thoughts, our resultant speech, and then the resultant action, the things that we put into, uh, into action based on how we've thought. And so he, he reminds us that mind is chief. Mind made are we. Whatever we think and ponder on, that becomes the inclination of the mind. He abused me. He beat me. He robbed me. He said, those who harbor such thoughts in them, hatred will never be appeased. So that's the first con- uh, prohibition against demand. You know. Uh, that's the pr- first prohibition against protest in the sense of trying to force an action even if it's a good action he says that there is a way that things are done that bring about a certain result and there're ways things are done that bring about a different result so it doesn't mean that we shouldn't uh uh speak our our view he says but just know this you can't be attached you can't be attached to it that's the uh that's the principal thing. Uh so um I have five Dharma talks this morning <laughs> and I'm gonna <laughs> I know I say that all the time, but it's true. You know, how can it be otherwise? I mean, if we look, I don't know, there's like maybe 50 people or so in here, and each person has a different mind. Each person comes with a, a different need. Each person comes with a different aspiration for hearing something that might ease some suffering In some area of their life. You know, we're not like vanilla wafers and we all look the same, talk the same, act the same, have the same things going on in our lives. So, how is it possible that the Dharma speaks to each one individually? How is it possible? It's because the Dharma has a way of rising up if one will get out of the way and just let the Dharma speak. And so, I might say some things that nothing absolutely to do with you. You could just let that one bypass. Just listen for the thing that that vibrates, that resonates for you, you know, and just take that one little piece home, and just work with that one little piece uh, this week. There was an ascetic uh, that was rubbing his bloody feet, and he uh, said to the monk, you know, he'd just been walking and walking and walking, and, and he said to the monk, I wish the world was covered with leather, you know, and that would be easier on my feet. And the monk said, well, why not just wear leather shoes instead? (laughs) And so he's saying that you can't change the world to accommodate you, that you have to find a useful and meaningful way to engage the world that will leave it a better place. So Buddhism is not about changing the world so that we can feel better. It's not about that at all. But it is about changing our attitudes, changing ourselves so that we can better accommodate the world as it presents itself to us moment by moment. Because you see, moment by moment, conditions will change. You wake up in the morning, you're feeling good, you get a phone call, oh, it wasn't good news, now you're feeling bad. Uh, But right away, you run across somebody you had not seen for a long time and you're happy again. And the very next moment, you know, You're looking, you've overdrawn your bank account, and you're feeling bad, and the next moment, you know, you get you open your mail, and there's a, a offer in open the mail for a loan. All you gotta do is sign, and they'll put the money in your bank account, and you're feeling good again. And the next moment, and so all day long, we're having situations, and we're like, I like it, I don't like it, I like it, I don't like it, I like it, I don't like it, this makes me happy, this makes me sad, this makes me mad, this makes me glad. And so he says that life, then, it's really around these eight aspects, or we call them the vicissitudes, the things that come with life. Praise and blame, loss and gain, pleasure and pain, fame and shame, and that's it. Sorry. <laughs> that's it. And so he says that if we take any one of these and attach it to, to it, then suffering will arise for us. But if we recognize that all day long, whoosh, it's going to be like that. It's going to be this or this. He says that we don't have to really get involved with any of it. Oh, that's so what I needed to hear this morning because this morning I was involved in something. you know. And he says that we don't have to be attached to things. Just watch as circumstances arise and know that there was no way, absolutely no way possible for this situation to present itself except that the causes uh, that created. We're in manifestation. When those causes come together, they create this situation. So know that it's here rightfully. It's not like uh, like this shouldn't be happening. If you do this, this will arise. That's why he says it makes no sense to. Uh, to war against others because the victor walks away thinking that they have won while the loser thinking, you know, we're going to wage war and we're going to get all of that back and some. We're going to take what they took from us and we're going to take theirs. And so it's going to be constantly like playing ping pong, ping pong. And if we realize that, they will, we will not be so ready to uh, feel so much pride around our... Uh, 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 a persona of, of warriorship or dominance or imperialism. You know, we have to really understand cause and condition. There's no way that we can send our, our children to war and to maim and to kill others, and I think that, that they're not bringing that back home. So then they start maiming and killing their neighbors and their wives, and, you know, they just go off the deep end because they've been brainwashed. When you see something pop up, That's the enemy. And and getting uh, in this kind of vein, we we lose a certain quality of being that is available and affordable, but it does cost something. It is available and it is affordable, but it does have a cost. And so I wanna talk about counting up the cost today. You know, so many times we talk about cultivation, you know, and what is cultivation and how to cultivate. We can say that uh, donning robes doesn't make one a a monk, and getting certificates doesn't make one a teacher. You know, but there is a certain way that we have to live what we embrace to truly be a monk or to truly be a teacher. And the Buddha said that there are different kinds in this world. There's a person who uh, teaches a thing, but he doesn't live it. And there's the kind who teaches and who lives it. And we can learn from both the one who teaches and doesn't live it and the one who teaches and lives it. But one of them will have a kind of peace that can be transmitted and the other will not. And so he said that we must cultivate and cultivation is not uh, just learning the Dharma. Cultivation is not just memorizing the Dharma. Cultivation is not just talking the Dharma, the Dharma being of the teachings of the Buddha. But it is taking them and putting them into uh, the cauldron of our experience. It's about uh, practicing them. It's about endeavoring to unpack and understand them, even when you're reading a, a line and say, that doesn't make a bit of sense to me, not right now. Uh, I, I, uh, I talk all the time about, I don't have my Majima Nikaya. Here with me, but it—it it was my principal study book that in the path of purification, for many, many, many years, and um, um, and I didn't let anybody u- see my book or use my book because I had personal writing in the margin. Now some of you are Tibetan and you think it's completely and totally disrespectful to write, you know, in the books that they're holy uh, instruments. Um, but I believe we walk out our holiness. So I used the book as a guide for that, and I need to make notes to myself. So I would write in the margin, when there was a particular paragraph that influenced me, either positively or, a, and a lot of times, negatively. I mean, I was there because I was trying to learn something. Obviously, what I knew was not enough. It was not, effic- it was not sufficient to bring me a certain degree of peace and, and happiness or enablement, you know, a capacity uh, that the good I, I I would do I could actually do, you know, so I was there to learn something a lot of times when we want to uh uh learn something, but we don't want to submit ourselves to it, you know uh so first has to be that decision, you know, will I submit myself to it to just take a looky see to just uh uh Put it into my life. And Buddhists, don't worry. If, if what you're reading doesn't work for you right now, you can just set that aside. You know, there will come a time in your life if you live long enough, if you go far enough, that might be useful to you. So you can just put it over there and say that part, maybe so, maybe not. And just take what you can and try to work with what you can work with or what really does speak to you. You don't have to take the whole ball of wax. He says that you don't have to take any of it. It's not going to stop. The vicissitudes from coming, but it may show you a way of escape, even in the midst of being in these turbulent winds of life. And so a lot of times he talks about, uh, he uses natural things or things of the world to help us to understand uh, spiritual principles. Now, last week I talked about there being, you know, Dharma language and there being ordinary people language. And you have to know the difference. And sometimes they're actually the opposite. So that what we think of as giving life, he, he speaks of as is running towards death. And sometimes the things that we think, oh, what would life be without that? You know, he's saying that is the very thing that you're looking for. Like when I, something comes my way that uh, brings me... Um, uh, unhappiness and causes the mind uh, to uh, fret or to worry or to be sorrowful or to be in grief, you know, or to be angry or to be confused or to be troubled. He said, my mind is agitated when those situations come into my life or those thoughts arise, you know, because we don't really see things as they are. We just see things as we are, you know. And so he says, causes the mind to be agitated. He said, but then when I really look at it, when I really, really look at it, the things that bring me happiness, the things, you know, that when I get what I want, or, he said, I find that the mind is still agitated. So it's agitated when, when what I consider negative things come. It's agitated when I consider what uh, positive things come. He said, so where then, what is the solution? The peace is what brings the, the depth the steadiness, I'm talking about it. internal peace. I mean, you can't fake this either. You either have it or you don't have it. Or oh, sometimes you can fake yourself out, you know, because um, we're so uh, resistant, you know, to uh, fessing up, to really looking at what is uh, troubling us. It's, it's like much easier for me to say, it's your fault. <laughs> you're doing this to me. It's much easier for me to say, you're causing this. It's much easier, you know. Because that doesn't require as much of me. But he asks us to be accountable for ourselves, to be accountable for uh, what we put, what we bring to the table, what effort we put into something. He asks us to be accountable. And this is the beginning, and this is the end of our practice and yet and still something uh, comes out of this that is so profound because we become not the written Dharma but we become the living Dharma, able to have impact in the world. We become the living Dharma, able to arouse a certain kind of courage and a fearlessness, a, um, an, a, an, an active aspect of truth that can impact people in situations. So I, I got an invitation the other day from a, um, a Zen monastery to come and, and do a retreat there. And um, this is a, um, I wasn't actually familiar with this particular one, yes, I go all over the place. And, you know, after you go somewhere, then you sort of get on a circuit and you go to the same 25 places, you know. And you know that you're going to get an invitation every year because, you you know, you shared something, some dharma that was meaningful. And you just wait for the invitation to come and you go. That's how it works. month goes when they're called. But this one was one that I wasn't familiar with. So I Googled them. I love Google. I Googled them to see who they were. And after I uh, read the web, uh, I I said, "Panya Deepa," I said, "I'm not sure that I should accept this invitation." I mean, this is a uh, this is a monastery that has a, a 280 uh, uh, acre compound with many, many, many buildings. I said, "I'm I'm having difficulty just holding and building this little place right here." You know, I said, this is a monastery that has, uh, I don't know, I think it had some, maybe 15 or so different sanghas. I said, I'm having difficulty building this little sangha right here to fill this one little room. I said, uh, this is a monastery that has uh, hundreds, if not thousands of Sangha members, and I don't know how many um, uh, priests they had but it looked like maybe 200 priests, and they had outgrown their space, and they're building a bigger sanctuary that looked like a, a convention center on the grounds. I said, there's nothing I can go and say to this group. And not only that, they, uh, they wanted me to talk about um, engagement in the world, how to engage the world. But they had, I don't know, maybe a dozen different projects of engagement that they're already doing. I so I'm trying to get three or four people together to do something. I said, well, what could I possibly <laughs> have uh, to say to this group that would be useful? You know, um, and so I started to, you know, just um, turn down the invitation. And I said, I'll make a decision by tomorrow. And in that time, I got out of Ponyawaddy, because that's what it takes to be able to find, uh, to see clearly what should be done and what shouldn't be done. So as long as Ponyawaddy was thinking about like, you know, how she could benefit them, was well, nothing happening with that. It's no good, kaput, give it up. But when I settled down and got out of myself, then the Dharma began to speak to me. The Dharma said, you know, I could, I could use you or anybody else. The Dharma is still the Dharma. The truth, the liberating truth, is the liberating truth whether it comes out the mouth of a, a donkey <laughs> or out of the mouth of a prince. And then the light came on for me, and it didn't really have anything to do with me at that point. And then the Dharma told me what of itself I should reveal to them. You see, it takes getting out of our own way. Uh, There is a kind of compassion that arises within us. When we have a mind to do good, <laughs> uh, there's a scripture in the Bible says, "When I would do good, evil is always with me, <laughs> that evil. That evil is the sense of self. Where do I factor in this? You know What do I get out of this? What is the you know it's always about me. But when we're able to get past that, then something useful and meaningful can occur. So compassion does motivate us to want to engage in the well-being of others, but the unbridled energy of aversion to to sit with what feels unpleasant actually diminishes our capacity and it forces us to rush to what we perceive is the choice to make or the decision to make. And so the first thing that he teaches us is to sit with things when they arise, whether they seem good, whether they seem not good. But to just sit. There was a time whenever there was an invitation, I was raring to go. I had something I wanted to share. And then I read this uh, passage and it completely changed me. The passage says that the one who knows has a lot to say. And I was like, yeah, that's me. (laughs) But then it went on to say, but the sage who knows speaks little. And suddenly I found myself I knew where I was on the path. I knew what was the next reach for me. At one time, it was to share so much of what I knew, but now it's not about that. It's knowing and yet not having a need to say much. Becoming integrated with the world in such a way that one can can be in the world and not need so much uh, outer busyness. Not have to have your hands in every pot. Not have to have something to say or to control or to lead or to guide anything. But there's an inner work that can be cultivated and can be performed that uh, transforms everything around you. Do you have that? If you don't, that's where That's the next step to go to. First, there's some uh, capability that emerges, but there's some place to go after being capable. And a lot of us, after we have been capable in our life, feel a sense of sadness when that particular form or expression of capability is not there. And we wonder, well, what should I be doing with myself now? You know, where to go next. There's a shift in the energy and we're moving not uh, towards doing, but we're moving towards doing but then not being any doer. And so we need to know what time it is. And we need to know how to cultivate and weed our own garden. And if we will do that well, that garden produces the harvest. And so that's why he talks so much about cultivation and why the whole, uh, basically the whole teaching, the dharma and the discipline is around us cultivating and tending to our own garden. he says that we have to consider what a garden plot brings. Now, if we're going to plant a garden, and I, I kind of wrote it out, so I'm going to kind of read it just like I wrote it, just the way it came to me. It said you can't throw seeds and eat fruit the next day. Mm. That there's a counting up the cost and patience is required. Now, we had a garden out here because so many people came and said, well, I, we, I, oh, look at this, we're going to plant a garden and we're going to produce all the veggies for the, for the retreats and no, it's going to be organic and we're going to do this. And so they started digging up my grass and creating this plot. And in about one month, the whole garden idea was going and then we just had some th- seeds grown in the ground, and weeds grew up and overtook the seeds, and it was just an ugly mess out of there, out there. And I learned something about um, gardening, and I learned something about uh, just letting people come in and do what they want. When they said we want to come and plant garden, like, I didn't doubt it, because I believe that there should be a garden. I believe that we can grow the herbs and and provide the the food for the people. I absolutely do. But you need to know who's the one to do that. It's not everyone that says, oh, I want. So he says, observe them at some other activities first. How faithful are they in just working on themselves? Not coming and wanting to do something, you know, because one day they want to do it and the next day they want to leave. You know, he said, but watch and see who is steadily cultivating and working on themselves on the days that they feel good and the days that they don't feel good. You know, and when you see that kind of steadfastness to the process, that's one that you can count on to finish something that they start. You know, we start things and when we get into it, we're like, oh, I didn't know it was gonna take all of this, you know, and we say, oh, I don't want to do that. He said, but one of the hallmarks of the one who is mature is that they finish what they start. And so he says that there is something that we have to do so that that garden can mature and produce the fruit. What is the garden in your life? What are you trying to grow? What harvest are you looking for? So it requires counting up the cost of what this is going to take. And am I willing to put that forth for the next three months, four months, five months? What am I willing to invest and give to this project, to this situation, to, um, to this person? No, am I going to do a, a, like a, a drive-by, run in, say something, run off, and leave it for somebody else to fix? We have to look at all of these things. i going to go the distance. And then he says it takes patience because nothing happens quickly. You know, so it takes a long time. We can't even expect for it to be done overnight. So do we have a realistic expectation of how much time it might take? And are we willing to give that? He said, if not, better to not start a thing. He said, if not, better to not go into that. Don't make that agreement. If you can't, uh, also be willing to give the patience that it takes to finish the course. He said that there are specific deliberate steps that we uh, have to take. We have to decide what kind of garden we want. Like, not just like, oh, we'll just take, I'll take a handful of seeds, I don't know what they are, I'll put them out in the yard and see what, you know. Do we want an orchard? Do we want a vegetable garden? Do we want a herb garden? These are things that we can decide. Like, nobody forces us to do this. We decide. We decide. Sometimes we think, oh, look what, what you made me do. No, we decide what we will do. And if we don't decide, if we follow what someone else has, has uh, instructed, if we follow what someone else has, uh, is enforcing, it's nobody's fault but ours. I mean, we have to take responsibility for ourselves, You know, and then, then we wouldn't play the blame game. It's so wonderful to be able to take responsibility for yourself. I was uh, at a sangha one time, and, I, and I, uh, when I came in, there was, it was a, uh, uh, a retreat. And in this retreat, there were, there were 99 people uh, who came into this retreat. And I've said this before, but, uh, but I say it for a point. Uh, and I had, uh, there was a, a videographer that was uh, 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 shooting, the, shooting the, the day long. And the videographer was white. And this was a people of color retreat. And they told me they didn't feel safe with a white person in the room. And I said, well... All I can say about that is this: if it's 99 of you and I make 100 and you feel threatened by this one person, I don't know what to say. I don't think there's anything I'm going to be able to say today that's going to fix things for you, you know. So it's, it's like buying into something, you know. We have, to, uh, we have to be circumspect, and we have to hold ourselves uh, in times when people's minds are just going all over the place. And I believe me, I'd be the last one to say that we don't have an issue because we do have an issue. But we have to know what is our issue and what is somebody else's issue. You know, I can't think of anybody I know who was born black, that's still black, at 60 years old, that has not had to deal with things that I can't even begin to share with, with, with uh, my congregation of visitors here today. I mean, Because you'd have to live this to know this. You know, I'm not going to be able to make you understand it. You know, but I understand it, and I know what I have to do like, to protect myself. So if I'm coming into this assembly to be loved by you, I might never be loved. You know, but so I better come in with enough for myself. That's it. We can have enough. We are sufficient. We have enough. But I have to know that I have enough. There's so many marginalized groups. That's the way of of the unenlightened man. I mean, so we're going to come into a world unenlightened and we're going to be constantly confronted with the ignorance of people. What do we do? We need to find our own truth. We need to find our own wisdom, and we need to sustain ourselves. This was the good news of the Dharma, was that I am able, uh, completely able, to handle what concerns me in the course of a day. And so coming with uh, 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 that proposition being thrown out and developing confidence around maybe that's possible, let me look at it. It doesn't mean that everything in the world now has conformed to, to what makes me feel safe. But what I do know is that there's really no safety to be found anywhere. You know? So I have to do the best I can do. And it doesn't make me want to, to uh, carry around a bat or a gun for protection or fighting some enemy that might jump out from behind every corner. But I learned how to move in this world, understanding the world that I am in. And when you understand the world that you're in and you're at that space of of, uh, internal fortitude, then you're not looking for anything out there. But maybe you have something you could offer people who are caught up in their fears, in their feelings of of insecurity, in their uh, sense of not being good enough or not being accepted. And then you start to move beyond the mere words of things. And you can kind of tap into uh, an energy that's deeper than that. And you can know when people mean well even when they use the wrong word. And you won't be so hung up on the word. But you'll reach through and connect with that energy of acceptance. And sometimes when the time is right, you can say something that might touch them in such a way that they become more circumspect of how they approach you or how they speak. Sometimes a person is so full of fear about what's going on in their world, the way they perceive it. And they perceive you as a threat when you're not really a threat. You're just moving around, rolling around in your own ignorance. And if there was a way that they could approach you in a way that soothed your confusion, and that calmed your fear, you could take that way up yourself and you could understand it. But so we have to have this kind of mind as we go forth in our daily life, because our daily life is the dharma. He said everything is the dharma. The dharma is everything. So the women have to look for something spiritual, high and holy in a book. He said, but every moment of our day, that's the dharma. We're living the Dharma. Think of something, Maureen. Um, that's, that's the Dharma. And it's only when we activate it and put it into, you know, our lives uh, moment by moment, when we're interacting with people and situations that it will be of any benefit, be of any use, be good for anything.
1: Mm.
0: And so we decide who and what we want to be in the world. You don't decide that for me i decide that for me <laughs> you know some of us are trying to be what somebody said we had to be you know so we like like walking like living by default but the good news is that we can decide and some people have decided and for you know for wherever they're looking right now that doing this is what's best for me or what's meaningful for me and we might look at it and say it absolutely is not. It's not good for you, and it's not good for others. But just saying that doesn't make a person understand that, you see. And so we're not going to be able to make people conform to our idea of what we think is right, not even morally right. And there are different times within the cycles of living beings that we have different views and ideas around morality. And even in the same time, in different places, in different countries around the world, we have different ideas of what is acceptable behavior and what is not acceptable. I was reading something that was written in uh, 1838 by... uh, a missionary, a Christian missionary, who had gone to Sri Lanka, and he was trying to understand, you know, this way of life that he was thrust in to, you know, because you know his his role there was to convert uh, these heathen Buddhists and bring them, uh, bring them to to Jesus, uh, and so to do that he had to try to understand what they believed, and and he was so. Uh, uh, impressed by some of the things that he read and discovered. But there were other things. And so I'm reading about these uh, 13 pointers that were crucial to the understanding of, mona- of a monastic. And if I had read those before I became one, I would not have become one. I, I can tell you the truth. Uh, because it would completely turn me off. They had 13, uh, 13 items. And 12 of them were, like, wonderful. like. Um, a mother suckles her young and and establishes them on their wa- on their way something like that you know and 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 so these are all wonderful things but they had one thing to say and a woman's role is to bring contention now <laughs> it's why it's why i went to thailand Because they said that women were not qualified to take up the holy life. They're not qualified to become monastics. So they said women couldn't. And I'm thinking, well, that's what you say. And so they wouldn't ordain any women in Thailand. And everybody's writing the letters, 250,000, and they write all these letters and say, Paniwadi, next time you go to Thailand, would you take these letters first? And these are letters to, to say, please allow women. I'm like, no, you take that letter over there. I'm going next week, but I'm not gonna take, that, take those letters. Because you know? I was going over there to do what needed to be done. So I would go over and I would ordain women. They can't say there's no women over there because I ordained 55 of them myself. I know they're there. <laughs> so they can say they're none, but that doesn't make it true. You know, of course, now, just in this act uh, with uh, me, Dr. Lee, and um, what's the other nun there? She, she has even more than that. Um, and we just started ordaining women and training them. In their life. You know, and it was necessary. Why was it necessary? Because women had no advocate. They had no spiritual confidant. They had no one they could go to who knows anything about their world except what was written in some suitors interjected by, you know, the men. And there's no ding against men in mean, the army, but the truth is the light. No, you know, the, when the men wrote it and then they said, you know, they were training them to fear women from the time they were little boys, because that's what kept them, you know, in the monasteries, to be afraid of women. And so, but when you understand that, then you understand clearly what you need to do, you know? And it's just to relieve the suffering of other women who need women to say that you have value, you know? You're worthy of something. And that was the whole purpose of it. It wasn't to wager warfare against against our monks, you know? Some people wanted to do it that way. They want to have a revolt. They want to start a revolution. There was no need. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just find some obscure way to contribute. We don't always have to have a, ban- a placard and a banner that we beat people over the head with. Just one-on-one, find some little way to make a little difference. And before you know it, the whole thing collapses, and they don't know like how it even happened. You know, you don't uh, prog- uh, put your program out there. You just quietly do what needs to be done to undermine and to break down that which is unbeneficial, just simply by doing something, some little thing that is beneficial. So now that's changed the whole culture. There. Just one little act. You know, so they said, well, Panywadi, could you come and talk to us about it and how you, how you happened to do this? Well, number one, I wasn't afraid. A lot of women were asked. A lot of female um, monks were asked to go over there. To do that. Everybody was afraid. I'm not afraid. Doesn't mean that I, I broadcast and say, hey, guys, I'm coming. No, I snuck in. No need to know. I wasn't there for them. I just snuck in. And Princess Chulaporn, she would be, wait. She would send her uh, general to uh, receive us. You know. Uh, now he's the head. of, We're gonna have to um, cut this part out when before you post it online. Now he's the he's the one who's you know did the junta and in charge. So I don't know where he stands now. But but then part when we when when I came. Uh, and there's a, a photograph of it back there. When I came, his job was to uh, make sure there was a secure location because she was for the advancement of women. But as part of the royal family, she couldn't like really like, you know, talk that much about it. And and, and she couldn't outwardly support it, but she did what was within her power, was was to make sure that I was safe when I flew in. And if the monks found out where we were gonna hold the ordination, then the location would be changed and we'd switch someplace else. And there were many male monks that supported us. They hold a fan in front of their face so they wouldn't be seen, uh, couldn't be identified, but they were there for it. You know, so we said, well, what's, how do you make this change? How do you create this change? You know, there's no, sometimes there's no way to create a change with the present beings because the karma's not right. I said, no way. Uh, they're going to have to die off. We don't have to kill them. They're going to die ultimately. You know, so we'll just wait till the old God dies off and then we'll present it openly at another time. In the meantime, we just secretly, quietly do what we need to do. And that's what we did. You see, so there are ways of doing things that's not so outward, so much rabble-rousing, so much demanding. They were demanding rights. I said, no need to demand. You know, just decide what is for you, and then just step forward with that. And then when they did ordain, they didn't start parading around the street, we are female monastics. No, they went into caves. Some monks uh, allowed, gave them spaces on their grounds. You know, and they just quietly continued their cultivation and their personal development and seeing a woman here and seeing a woman there to strengthen a woman along the way, to be an advocate for them, to counsel them around the issues of life, to just uh, like that. But over time, you see, something is growing and it may not be in my lifetime, I might never see it. And there was nothing personally in it for me. But in this way, we can learn how to do without doing, and without there being, uh, having a vested interest in things. He said that uh, we have to look and see what kind of of uh, soil is going to take, you know, to produce uh, the crop that we want. I mean, you just can't throw soil in a in a real rocky, uh, nutrient deficient. Uh, I mean, um, seeds in a rocky, uh, nutrient-deficient soil and expect to have a good crop, you know. So you have to set your expectations in line with your soil. (laughs) I have to remind myself of that almost every day, (laughs) you know. I mean, like, if I wanted a a bombastic crowd that was like rah-rah and put a dharma, then I needed to go to California. Now, I was out in California, because that's where I started looking, and uh, every time I got ready to put a, a contract on, because the people were saying, come out here, we will support you, we will build a temple, we will do this, we will do that, and every time I looked at something, it had been on the market for a year, two years, nobody wanted it. The day that I said, okay, let's go for this one, I get a call from the realtor, another contract's coming in, and it's full price, you know, and I'm I'm like call me last because I'm going to make the lowest ball offer. You know, that's why I'm looking at properties that have been on the market for two years, something nobody wants, like this one, sat vacant for ten years. I said, that's what I'm looking for, you know. I know what I got to work with. And And so then it became clear to me, you know, after about the third or fourth time that I was looking in the wrong place for the work that I needed to do, it was not in California, you see and being able to see the signs. And so I know that I'm where I'm supposed to be. And I'm thinking it's for the welfare of many, but maybe it's just for the welfare of Panyawadi. But when she recognizes what's good for her welfare and surrenders to it, then it inures to the welfare of many. You'll see. That's how we can look. Not so much about what we can do for someone, but just about understanding oneself and thereby taking some suffering out of the world. The more I understand me, the less I cause you to suffer. It's like that. Thinking about it like that. And so he says that that, uh, it's going to take more time and effort if the soil is stony. So you have to be prepared for that. You have to get what you need. You might have to add a little fertilizer. There are things you have to do to prepare the soil, and you can't expect the crop to grow before you prepare the soil. So give that time to preparing oneself for service. Give yourself that time to really figure out where you stand on things. Where you stand, not where um your pastor says it, not where the monk says it, not where the book says it, but within myself, where do I stand on this? What is my view? And then put that view up against what you consider the view of the wise, the most sublime view. It's no blame, no shame to, oh Pony Why you gotta work on that. That is decidedly a wrong attitude. Like I know it, I know it, I know it. You know. But acknowledging and accepting that this is how I think, but this is where I'd like to take it. And then embarking on a journey of unpacking that, of dealing with one's views, one's opinions, how they feel in the body, how it feels uh, after you've done a thing. Did that feel Uh, Did it feel good? Did it put me at ease? Or do I feel ashamed? Do I feel some sense of guilt? Thinking that thought, am I angry? Yeah. The thing is, somebody can do something, yeah, and then I get angry about it. Well, they did what they did, good (laughs) or bad, they did it. But the anger, that's mine. I have to own that. So immediately, I have to shift from what they did when I really wanted to deal with what they did, but I have to shift from what they did to this anger that's in me because that's mine. And I have to look at that or the fear or disgust or displeasure. So he's constantly encouraging us to turn inward in every situation, when there is an emotion arising, to recognize that I sit at the seat, that I have the capacity to govern and control how I respond to every situation. And if I can learn how to do it through practice, we don't, pra- you know, practice, we have to practice. But we don't practice when we're sitting trying to meditate or even when we're listening to a talk. We practice in the moment when the mind is agitated, either towards a negative way or towards a positive way. It's right then and right there that we examine what is going on inside of me and how well does it measure up to my aspiration or my idea of what is correct. That's the best we can do. But the thing is, he said that the more we continually lean towards what produces (coughs) beneficial results and we can recognize it, we can see it, we can hear it, we can feel it. If that's what we really want, the more we start to become inclined to continue to do things that way. And then we find that we can be in the midst of turmoil. We can be Uh, in the midst of of, uh, of, uh, a situation where we're totally disrespected. We can be in the midst of injustice, and yet we can remain steady and open to the wisdom that comes when the mind is empty, and we can find a way engage in that situation that will bring about something positive. And so I'm going to take that retreat. Because they're asking for a reason. Right? Sometimes we're just doing, 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 and we've forgotten why we're doing it. Sometimes we're running hard towards what looks right. You know, but don't have a clue of why we're doing it, and even what we're trying to accomplish beyond um, beyond our view. You know, becoming accepted by the other as the right view. My mind has changed about a lot of things over the years. Things that I was fervent about that I thought was right, that I don't think so now, simply because I see the pain that it brings to another. Caused me to rethink my ideas about certain things. And it will for you too. And then we'll move, we'll live, we'll have our being in the world and not be contrary towards anyone whether they agree with us or don't agree with us. Now this doesn't mean that we don't have to take care of some things. This doesn't mean that we take no action. But it does mean that there's work to do inwardly before we step forward to take action. And this is what the Dharma asks us to do get ourselves out of the hole first, and then reach back and try to pull someone out. Developing the inner strength to listen to the views of others without feeling driven uh, to counter a protest prematurely. But first let us come to a place of stillness inside where we have nothing to gain. We had uh, fun, I could say, singing the songs we sang last week. You know, and, and when you really enter into them, uh, you kind of uh, feel like you're there because the song transports you someplace. But, you know, when the song is over and we come back to ourselves, our ordinary mind, we have to look and see if then we're doing that. We have to look and see then if we are, uh, 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 what was the song? There's a line in it that we sang Sunday. I I give myself away so that you can use me, you know. And when we put that song together, we changed those words because they said, ah, oh, people get the wrong understanding. Because you know, some people already feel like they've been used and they're so, so wounded and that's going to trigger. And, you know, and then, <coughs> <laughs> and so I so said, we can't, we can't say that line. And we changed the line. But then the morning, we were rehearsing just before we came in to sing. You know, and I was all prepared with the dharma. And it said, put that back. You know, and I put that back. And it was transformational because it brought us to a place of surrender, a place of understanding, you know, um, understanding not self in a certain way, that we no longer had anything that we were holding on to. And for a few minutes, it felt really good. And we touched that space, you know. But then the song was over, and we came out we went back to our daily life, you know, touched by it, but not being able to continually abide in it, yeah? But we started. We at least see it. We have it in our view. But now we have to continually lean the mind towards that. And when we do, ultimately, it will become our true, stable attitude, and then we can sing it, Fully in truth, I give myself away so that you can use me. Here, take my life as a living sacrifice. And it's only when we get to that place where we have no investment in it, no particular view we're trying to justify that we are qualified.
1: When you want to say you're sorry But your pride gets in the way Then you find you're feeling angry You can't make it go away When you hit the ground the first time and you keep hitting it over and over again. Oh, you know, yeah, you know this is suffering. But then you hear the Dharma as it comes and shakes you out of your sleep. Davis laughing. Just as happy as anyone can be, because they pick you up and dust you off, place you firmly back to the wind, and that bright, shining light finally starts to sink in. Ooh, 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 ooh. Ooh, 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 When the sirens of desire sing their magnetic song And the iron in your heart, it just gets pulled along You feel the rust of choices made You feel the burning of the fire and you're caught Yeah, you're caught in the web of desire But then you hear the Dharma As it comes and shakes you out of your sleep Deva's laughing Just as happy as anyone could be As they pick you up and dust you off Place you firmly back To the wind, and that bright shining light finally starts to sink in. When you sense something suspicious, you smell. Fear brewing below And your thinking's getting crazy And it wants to take control Here comes that same old tornado Stand your ground and let it blow Cause you know now You can do this on your own Yeah, you heard the Dharma As it came and shook you out of your sleep Now you're laughing Just as happy as anyone could be Cause you've seen the light That cosmic joke You were right here from the start The beginning in the end With No self to defend. Thanks to Dharma. Thanks to Devas. Thanks to friends. Oh, thanks to Dharma. Thanks to teachers and wise friends.
0: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com